Blood, Sweat, and Fear is an independently produced true crime podcast hosted by Eve Lazarus. The series is based on her best-selling books, Blood, Sweat, and Fear, Cold Case Vancouver, and Murder by Milkshake, an astonishing true story of adultery, arsenic, and a charismatic killer. I'm Eve Lazarus, and you're listening to Blood, Sweat, and Fear. It's the story of Inspector John Vance, Vancouver's first forensic investigator. Inspector Vance first worked with the Oak Bay Police Department in 1937. He'd been called to Victoria on Vancouver Island to work on the Doris and Victor Gravelin murder-suicide. The following year, he was asked again to travel to Victoria and assist with another baffling homicide. Oak Bay is one of my favourite parts of Greater Victoria, and it's quite close to the downtown core. There are miles of beaches, windy roads, arbutus trees and Gary Oaks. It's got a funky vibe, with lots of stores, art galleries, restaurants and cafes. It also has lots of history, including the oldest Chinese cemetery in Canada. In 1938, Oak Bay was a mix of gorgeous heritage houses and beach-style cottages. It had a small police force used to dealing with petty crime. According to the police logbook for that year, police issues mostly revolved around stolen property. That year, they searched for missing street signs, a lot of lost dogs, a boy who refused to go to school, trees down and car accidents. The Oak Bay Police Department was definitely not used to dealing with murder. It was almost four in the morning on April 1st, 1938, when Annie Patrick woke to a pounding on her front door and a woman's voice calling her name. She found her neighbour standing there in her dressing gown and couch and socks, clutching her little girl. A quilt was draped over both of them. Annie told Vera Colburn to come inside and asked her what was wrong. Vera told her that they'd been robbed and she couldn't wake her husband. Annie asked her son Bob to call police. Sergeant Hugh Reston was only minutes away and soon arrived at the Patrick House on Balker Avenue. The sergeant found Vera sitting in a chair with five-year-old Hilda still in her arms. Vera was visibly agitated and trembling. She told him that someone had broken into their house through a window. She'd heard an explosion and seen a flash. She was frightened and took Hilda and ran to the Patrick's house, two doors down. Sergeant Reston, Bob and Bob's father, Robert Patrick, left for the Colburn's house. As Reston walked along the path to the house, the first thing he noticed was a can of white paint that had spilled onto the sidewalk. There was another can of paint pushed against the Colburn's front door. It was still intact. Reston moved the can a few inches so he could open the screen door, which was closed but unlocked. The key to the front door of the house was in the lock on the outside of the door. The house was in darkness, so Reston turned on his flashlight and entered, moving cautiously into the bedroom, which was to the right of the front door. He found Sidney Colburn lying dead on the couch with a bullet hole in the middle of his forehead. The pillows, sheets and blankets and the floor were soaked with blood and blood was still streaming from the man's nose and left ear. His arms were folded across his chest and his body was still warm to Reston's touch. 
Reston asked Robert Patrick to go back to his house and phone Chief John Syme and asked him to bring the coroner. While he waited, Reston took a look around the small three-bedroom bungalow. It was still very dark and there was a touch of frost in the air. The lights wouldn't turn on and he saw that the main light switch that was on the veranda and controlled the house's electricity was disconnected. It looked to him that someone had stood on the paint can to reach the electrical panel. The lights came on when he pushed the switches back down. All the windows were locked except for the one on the west side of the house, which was wide open. A curtain rod lay on the outside of the window sill. The back door was bolted on the inside. While Reston had initially thought robbery was behind the break-in and the murder, the house hadn't been ransacked, nothing was out of place, the front door was unlocked, and he couldn't find the Colburn's black-and-white sheepdog. He knew the dog was left loose at night and was often chasing cars. In fact, Reston had seen the dog when he'd driven past just a few hours before while on patrol. The dog barked when anyone went near the house. When Chief Syme arrived, he also noticed the lack of disorder in the house. He searched the dead man's pockets and found a watch and 75 cents in change. As his sergeant had already noted, if a burglar had entered through the open window, the curtain rod on the windowsill would have been knocked to the floor. Syme examined the sawhorse that was under the outside window. If a thief had used it to break into the house, it would have showed some sign of footsteps or other trace evidence such as grass or dirt. Syme saw that it was clean. He went to talk to the widow. Vera told him that they'd arrived home about 10.30 the previous night. Sid had been paid $40 that day and he told her he would give her money to pay the bills. She joined Hilda in bed, leaving Sid sitting on the couch counting his money. She remembered her husband putting his wallet on the dresser beside the bed. The next thing she remembered was waking up around midnight when she heard the dog running down the front steps. A few hours later, she woke to an explosion and caught a glimpse of a short man wearing a Mac jacket and holding a flashlight. He was bending over her bed, she said. The front door was open and the light wouldn't turn on. Vera said the four tins of white paint that were in the bedroom closet were gone. The whole story sounded bizarre to Syme, especially the part about the stolen paint cans. He went back into the Colburn house to fetch some clothing for Vera and had her arrange for friends to take care of her daughter. Vera was taken to the police station as a material witness and placed in the charge of the city matron. The newspaper headline that afternoon was April Fool's Day Slaying. The article reported that Sidney William Colburn, 43 years old, had been shot in the head while he slept on a couch next to his wife and little daughter. While Chief Syme thought the robbery theory highly unlikely, he had the widow give him a description of their valuables and where they were kept. Vera said that Sid kept a rosewood box on the bedroom dresser with his gold watch and diamond tie pin. This was also where she kept a ring with two small diamonds and two gold rings. The chief couldn't find the box with those items, the wallet with the missing cash, or the murder weapon. Either the shooting was done by a burglar or the robbery was an attempt to misdirect police. 
Chief Syme began to piece together the events that led up to the murder. Sid had worked that day as a ship's rigger and splicer for the BC Coast Steamship Service. He, Vera and Hilda usually spent their Thursday nights at the house of their friends, William and Dorothy Fraser. On the day of the murder, Vera and Hilda were already at the house, while William met up with Sid after work. They had a few beers and then stopped on the way home to pick up more beer. After dinner, the two couples played crib and then William drove the Colburn family home. Dorothy Fraser told police that earlier that day, Vera had mentioned that she was not getting along with her husband, but when they left, they seemed on good terms. Sid, she said, was not drunk, and Vera didn't drink, ever. The Oak Bay Police Department was still a five-man operation, with access to only three vehicles. Because Syme had worked with Inspector Vance on Doris Gravelin's murder the previous year, he once again requested his help. Vance gave him instructions over the phone on how to preserve the crime scene and asked him to put the house under 24-hour guard until he arrived. He asked Syme to have police take photographs and dust the entire house for fingerprints. Then Vance made arrangements to take the night ferry to Victoria. Next morning, Vance, Chief Syme, Constable Robert Smith and Sergeant Albert Bailey from the BC Provincial Police went back to the Colburns to conduct a thorough search of the house. Vance examined the veranda by the front door and noted that a person of about 5 foot 10 could have used a can of paint to stand on so that they could pull the light switch. He checked the open living room window but couldn't find any evidence of someone coming through there recently. Constable Smith was searching the living room when he noticed that the stove pipe that led from the heater to the chimney was loose. He took a rake that was used to remove soot from the stove and carefully probed through the soot and ashes until he struck metal. Smith reached in and removed a revolver, which he placed on a piece of paper on the living room floor. It was a nickel-plated thirty-eight caliber Smith & Wesson. There was a spent cartridge behind the firing pin and a loaded shell in the chamber. He bagged the soot, the ashes and the gun. Later that morning, Smith was searching the kitchen and found Sid Colburn's black leather wallet containing $31, his identity card and several receipts inside a baking pan that was hanging on the wall. Meanwhile, Sergeant Bailey found a small cardboard box containing the missing jewellery in the clothes closet and wedged against the door jamb. Bailey dusted the gun, the wallet and the stovepipe for fingerprints, but the only item that produced a fingerprint was on the can of paint and was later identified as Vera's. Vance had all the evidence sent to his lab in Vancouver. He needed to confirm the type of ammunition used to kill Colburn and the kind of weapon that fired the bullet. He also had to confirm that the gun found in the chimney fired the bullet that killed Colburn and the distance between the target and the weapon when it was fired. His next stop was to see Dr John Moore, the pathologist, and collect the bullet that had been extracted from Sid Colburn's brain. The shot had been fired at close range and fractured the base of the skull, which caused a hemorrhage in the brain. The bullet had left 90 tiny but distinct powder marks on Colburn's head. The bullet was in two pieces and badly battered, 
but under the microscope, Vance could see that the bullet taken from the brain had a groove with a right-hand twist, which matched that of the revolver found in the chimney. Vance examined Colburn's hands for powder marks or lead. There weren't any, which told him that the wound was not self-inflicted, and from the photographs of the crime scene, he saw that the gun would have been held almost level to Colburn's head when it fired. Police told the media that Vance's testimony would have an important bearing on the case. The Vancouver Sun reported, While Vancouver's ace criminologist, Inspector Vance, began a study of the physical clues of the scene, police investigation of Victoria's April Fool's Day murder turned today to an exhaustive inquiry into the past life of the victim. When Vera and Sid met in January 1931, both were married to other people. Vera's husband, Clarence, was a 24-year-old labourer and they ran a boarding house. Sid met his first wife, Mary Jane, shortly after he arrived from London, England in 1919. Mary Jane was a 57-year-old dressmaker. Sid was 24. Two months after Sid met Vera, his wife, Mary Jane, died from a stroke. Vera's husband divorced her shortly afterwards and Vera married Sid in May 1931. They moved into the Oak Bay house where Sid had lived with his first wife. Their daughter Hilda was born the following year. Sid started to abuse Vera a month after they were married. He slapped her face for no apparent reason and once tried to choke her. He often swore at her, even in front of their child. Vera found four love letters in his wallet signed by a woman named Elsa B. Sid took Vera's fur coat and mink stole, both of which had originally belonged to his first wife, and gave them to his mistress. When Vera asked him about this, Sid took her to a lawyer and made her sign a document that said, I do hereby give to Sidney Colburn one fur coat and one mink neck piece. In July 1936, Vera went to see a lawyer and had him draw up a separation agreement. Sid refused to sign the papers until Vera agreed to sign over custody of Hilda. Desperate, she did, and then she moved into a room on Pandora Street, supplementing her work at the Crystal Garden by cleaning people's houses. Sid would often turn up drunk at the house, threatening to shoot her if she didn't go back to him. He wouldn't let her see a daughter, so Vera went back to the lawyer to try and force Sid to let her see Hilda. When she found out that Hilda had been taken to the hospital three times after she left, she went back to her husband. That was at the end of January, two months before his death. Sid bought the gun and told her if she tried to leave him again, he would shoot her because he wasn't going to be humiliated in front of the neighbours. He wouldn't let her see her lawyer and told her that she would pay for leaving him. He also told her that her father would never testify against him in court because Sid told him he would kill him if he did. Vera told Chief Syme that Sid had been angry on the night of his death because he thought 10.30 was too early to go home, especially while he was drinking with his buddy and having a good time. But little Hilda was tired and needed to go to bed. When they got home, Vera put Hilda to bed and then Sid wanted to have sex. When she told him no, she had a bad pain in her side, he hit her in the stomach, he swore at her 
then pressed his gun against her neck, repeating that if she tried to leave him again, he would kill her and her father. Sid's abusive behaviour was escalating and Vera decided to take the gun to a neighbour's house and phone the Oak Bay police. She climbed back into bed and managed to get the gun from under her husband's pillow without waking him up. She crawled out across the bed, holding Hilda in one arm. When she was halfway across the bed, Hilda kicked out with one of her feet. The gun went off and Vera fainted. She came to and called out to Sid, but he didn't answer. She remembered hearing a dripping sound, but terrified, she gathered up her daughter in a quilt and tossed the gun in a hole in the chimney to hide it from Sid. She threw the contents of a tin of paint on the top of the steps and left another tin on the veranda. If Sid woke up, she would tell him that someone had tried to steal the paint. Vera said that she hadn't put her husband's wallet in a roasting pan in the kitchen or hidden the jewellery box in a cupboard. Her husband often hid their valuables, but didn't tell her where he put them. She said she pulled the main light switch as they were leaving the house, and Hilda started to cry. Vera didn't find out that her husband was dead until police told her three hours later. Vera apologised to Chief Syme for telling him the story about the man with the flashlight and said she never would have lied if she knew that her husband was dead. She was terrified of him, but she hadn't meant to kill him. Vera was charged with murder and her trial was set for the following October. In the meantime, she stayed in jail. Hilda became a footnote in the tragedy. The only other mention of her was that she was staying with friends of the family. On October 15th, the 57-year-old chief of police shot himself in the head. John Syme was found in the bush in the area now known as Finity Gardens. Sergeant Reston was named chief. Two days later, the public gallery was full in anticipation of the first day of Vera's trial. She had spent more than seven months behind bars and she pled not guilty to the murder of her husband. The jury of 12 men heard from 15 witnesses. Vera's lawyer built a case showing a frightened, abused woman who killed her husband in a tragic accident. Vera told the court that she'd visited Dr Herman Robertson two weeks before the shooting. She'd seen him for pains in her lower abdomen where Sid had hit her. She went back again just over a week later when Sid hit her in the face and left her with a bruised lip. Others testified that they'd seen Vera with a bruised face and black eye a few weeks before the shooting. Rose Otley, who had worked briefly as a housekeeper for the Colburns, said she'd been fired when she told Sid that she was going to tell police that he had a gun in the house. Nora Yulden, a family friend, told of visiting the Colburn home shortly before the shooting and telling Sid off for using filthy, disgusting language in front of his wife and child. She said that he shrugged his shoulders, laughed, and said he would like to carry her out of the house in a box. Prosecutor Jackson tried his best to argue that the shooting was premeditated and he painted a picture of an abused woman who killed her husband and then lied to cover it up. Realising that the jury's sympathy was with Vera, the prosecutor tried another angle. He called the court usher William Jones to the witness box. Jackson cocked Sid Colburn's revolver and threw it on a chair. He knocked it across the table and finally dropped it on the floor, 
He asked Jones to repeat his actions. Fortunately for the jury, judge and the audience, the weapon didn't fire. Vera's lawyer then called witnesses to prove that the revolver could be discharged without a direct pull on the trigger. A firearms expert described the tests he'd made with a revolver at the Colburn home and told the court that it was an old, dangerous weapon that was easy to fire and could accidentally discharge. When Inspector Vance took the stand, he agreed with the firearms expert that it was entirely possible that the gun fired accidentally when Vera moved it. It was my opinion that the gun or revolver was held from 8 to 14 inches away from the head and would have to be lying almost on a level. I examined the hands of the deceased, Sidney Colburn, and could find no powder marks or lead on the hands. I examined the entrance to the house, through the window, in the living room, and could find no visible evidence at all of someone having entered there recently. The jury couldn't reach a verdict, and the prosecution immediately called for a new trial. This one would take place 11 days later. At the end of the second trial, the judge told the jury that they had two choices. Either they found Vera guilty of murder, or they found her not guilty. If they thought Sid's death was accidental, then they had to acquit her. This time there was no doubt. The jury deliberated for an hour and a half and found Vera not guilty. I couldn't find out what happened to Hilda, but Vera remarried in 1949. John Rawlinson ran the Ajax Tools and Curios store. He died four years later, and Vera lived in the Victoria area until her death in 1995 at age 89. One of the reasons that I wanted to include this case in my book and now in this podcast is I was fascinated that Vera got off. This was 1938, and there wasn't much sympathy for people who were victims of domestic abuse. Before 1983, 25 years after this case went to trial, rape was still considered an offence outside of marriage. In other words, this meant that a husband could not be charged with raping his wife. Basically, the law made it okay for a husband to do pretty much whatever he wanted to do to his wife. What I found out when I was researching this story was the meaning behind the phrase rule of thumb. This came from the idea that a man was entitled to beat the crap out of his wife with a stick as long as it wasn't any thicker than his thumb. The law also made it very difficult for a woman to leave a husband, as Vera had tried to do. She found she could leave, but not take or even see her daughter. After she left, Sid started physically abusing five-year-old Hilda, so Vera went back to him for the sake of the daughter, and the abuse against her escalated. The battered women defence syndrome didn't enter the courtroom until the mid-1990s. I wish I could tell you things are much better for women today, but they're not. These numbers are from the Canadian Women's Foundation. On average, every five days, a woman in Canada is killed by her partner. Each year, over 40,000 arrests result from domestic violence. That's about 12% of all violent crime in Canada. But since less than a quarter of all incidents are reported to police... The real number is much higher. I asked Tracy Porteous, Executive Director of the Ending Violence Association of British Columbia, if a woman is being abused, 
Why doesn't she just leave? For many women who are living in a violent or abusive relationship, one of the most dangerous things they can do is leave, and I think most people don't know that. I think most family members just want them to leave, and they think when they leave, everything's going to be fine. A woman or a girl is killed in Canada every two and a half days. And so, you know, this is an epidemic, and it's, it's unfortunately, I think, a silent epidemic. It's something that most people don't talk about. And so, therefore, most people are shocked to hear about something that is happening in the lives of a friend or family member or neighbor or coworker. So far too many women and their families are living in a level of silence. And that's what I think we need to change. If you are in an abusive relationship, and that can be physical, emotional, financial, stalking, or other forms of harassment, the first step is to talk to somebody. I've listed organisations in the show notes on my website, and you can find these at evelazarus.com. This is Eve Lazarus, and you've been listening to Blood, Sweat and Fear.